Hi, welcome to the first episode of Prehistories. It's uh, going to be a blend, I think, of book review, kind of a presentation of the evidence about prehistoric societies, and a discussion of the role of storytelling in interpreting archaeology. So not too ambitious. Um, Over the coming months, I'm going to be chatting with archaeologists about the evidence behind novels and children's stories set in mainly European prehistory. Uh, for this first one, I'm joined by Tristan Boyle from the An Archaeologist podcast. Hi, Tristan. Hello. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, I, this is a return favour because you had me on your show a couple of times. Um, and in fact, you inspired me to start this whole podcast, didn't you? Oh, well, I, you know, I try. I try. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for helping me start this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope it's going to be of use to some uh, archaeologists out there but also to uh, anybody who's interested in prehistory, really, and anyone who's interested in stories. And really, that's everyone, isn't it? I think um, that it's been shown time and time again that storytelling is um, the the most powerful way to get information across to people, um, particularly using uh, life stories of people um, to get across really deep concepts. and it's something that I don't think happens a great deal in archaeology. What do you think? Oh yeah, definitely. I think th- I think sometimes the power of a story can be uh, overlooked in certain contexts, especially I find in academic contexts, because ultimately people remember stories, and stories have meaning, and that's something very important that you know in certain ways or uh, in certain ways of doing research that we lose the concept of story. I think. A story for me can always bring people closer to the past and I, I think that's what makes telling stories and having stories not only I'd say about the past but how we make the past just as important like I, I'd love to hear stories about archaeologists not just yeah. the archaeology that they dig up yeah so I think it's, from that perspective to me it's really it's definitely something I really love the sound of and I really love the ideas and I, I can't wait to hear how that evolves in this show i mean are is there is there a favorite story from history that you like is there any kind of (laughs) idea in history that you are really that you really are like i just love that story yeah uh well i remember when i was doing my a levels um that i uh came across a book by sharon penman and it's called here be dragons and so i was hooked i mean i was that kind of kid you know the dragon kind of girl um, who, yeah, loved Anne McCaffrey as well before that, but that's much more fantasy-based. This is a historical novel um, set in Wales um, with Llewellyn Bower, Llewellyn the Great, and how he married one of King John's bastards, Joan or Joanna, whatever you want to call her. Um, and it was about, but it was, it was about the politics, but it was actually essentially a love story about how this girl went to marry this older man. She was 14, probably, maybe a little bit long, younger, who knows, and um, how she was scared and terrified, but eventually they came to love each other um, and he treated her very well and shielded her from her father when there were problems. Um, and obviously there was the romance of it that really swept me away. But I could tell just from the writing that it was hugely well-researched. I mean, there's so much detail in there. Not suffocating detail, you know, when a, a writer will clearly just demonstrate how much research they've done, whether or not it's 
uh, relevant to the plot. But it was um, it really sucked me in, and I, and I ended up doing project MA levels based on based on that. I wrote to Sharon Penman and uh, asked her about her sources. She said that she'd use the Mabinogion um, mostly, um, and then kind of just embroidered around that. And I think that that I didn't do history in the end. I did archaeology. Came into archaeology. Uh, because the rest of history was all about dates and kings and, and acts of parliament. Um, and there was something a little bit more freeing about archaeology, about that I, I felt it was more open to be to, to have stories told about it. Um, but that wasn't really how it came across at uni and in academic archaeology and, and the articles that you have to read and the essays that you have to write. Um, I all have a very particular style um, that is, you know, impersonal and um, not uh, particularly engaging, frankly. <laughs> um, so it was after university that I um, started to come across a few archaeologists that were trying to do some more engaging writing. Um, uh, like Gabriel Cooney, for instance, um, in his book about Neolithic Ireland, where there is a little tight kind of afterward at the end where he puts all of this information that he's written in a very normal style throughout. Um, but at the end, there's a lovely little story about how that actually might have appeared in real life, as it were. And I th and that was um, almost revel revelatory for me in academia. What about you? Have you got any particularly good stories that you, you like about prehistory or any other period, indeed? Oh, wow. No, I, I, I like, I don't know. Actually, I don't really know. I think, I don't know. I'm, I'm really, I'm really stuck for that because, like, I don't I wish I wish I had I wish I had a story like you you were just like I'm ready my story I'm like oh, god damn it I'm on the spot um I You actually, prefer jokes don't you <laughs> Oh I love jokes I love jokes a lot actually the other thing I like is I like hearing about things that kind of contribute to possibly a story you know what I mean like yeah. obviously obviously there's like ideas out there about for example in the news recently is about um, modeling about egalitarian hunt, uh, hunter-gatherer groups and yes, basically I, know, yeah. um, Weird. I had this I, I saw this really really insensitive blog post one time but you know oh you know women aren't grateful at all we hunted the mammoth they said <laughs> and I was like are you kidding me but then um, this came up and I was like you know what the best answer to we hunted the mammoth was was she hunted the mammoth Mm. Um, because ultimately, like, I thought it was really cool that in egalitarian groups you had, um, non-kin families, mm. you know, you had these, um, these families that were basically, uh, extended families from different groups and it allowed for larger social networks. And I just, to me, that's really, really cool. I mean, it's kind of like, it's going out, right? And going mm. hunting with your friends, and I mean that's something I think <laughs> relatable. So what what happens is in this um, in this ancient past, you know, uh, you have Sarah, the Neanderthal. She's, yeah. She's doing her hair. She's getting ready for the big hunting trip. 
and she's uh, she's running a bit late, but that's okay because Barry he he just he, he's a bit he, he takes his time anyway, so she knows she's fine. So they kind of they they, they kind of they're they're walking to the um, clubs, and they're going to go pick up those clubs to go and do some dangerous damage. So as they're walking to the clubs, they're deciding uh, what sort of strategies they're going to have for the evening. Uh, sorry, the hunt. Mm. And um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so they, they then bump into the two other friends who they haven't seen in ages and they're like, oh, hello, how are you? And they're uh, kind of chatting away and, you know, saying, oh, how's the family? Oh, they're fine. My, you know, like, uh, yeah. Uh, oh, what about your... What about your fifth child? Oh, no, passed away, unfortunately. Infant mortality these days, always going up and down, you know? Oh, jeez, terrible. That's a really horrible thing to say, isn't it? Yeah, but anyway, awful. I know it's awful, but that's, that's humor for you. But uh, so they're having these chat, and they're like, all right, guys, come on. We get better get down to business. And they all decide to go out to uh, hunt some mammoth or whatever they're hunting in the more in the late pleistocene and <laughs> that, that, see that's a nice story that's a nice story because everybody knows everybody has that kind of um idea of what it's like to kind of go with people who aren't necessarily your close kin group and go and do stuff that's interesting together and yeah part of hunting is is about networking as well i think i i think i think yeah i think people add a functionality to the past that doesn't exist you know people are like oh well they were just hunting and that's what they did here yeah and that's it you're like no people like think about people hunting now people like make a big thing about it you know it's uh, mm. going even going out into the woods you know it's like oh we're going out we're going to camp and everything oh this is going fun i mean like did did ancient people sit around a campfire and tell stories you yeah, know yeah yeah exactly exactly um, this is a point that i try and make when i'm running my metallistic workshop i i work for the Chiltern open air museum from time to time and um developed a meter workshop for them um and we're doing all these things that are you know we've got to make the shelter we've got to make fire we've got to make rope and it's all those kind of subsistence activities that you must do to survive. And at the end, I have um, primed one small group of kids to create a little scene of, a, of the hunt, because that's one thing that we can't do. We can't go out and hunt animals, unfortunately, as part of this workshop. I know, I know, health and safety, there you go. And uh, uh, they put on a little skin and they've got their, um, they don't act, but we don't give them flints. Again, health and safety, unfortunately. So they might be hunting with a bit of antler or whatever. And they, um, or sometimes I end up being the, the DM or the, or the, um, the boar. I've got a couple of boar skins, which is pretty cool. Um, and they come and hunt me and they kill me and take my skin back to camp. And I, it's great. The kids love it. <laughs> Absolutely, it. Oh my word. <laughs> but it's part of that. We've, we're sitting around the campfire and they're watching this little show, and it's uh, we're telling the story, and they understand finally that the people had more to their lives than just living, mm -hmm. just existing. It was um, it, it was much more about you know they were just like us that's what i want to get across that's always what i want to get across is that although their way of life is completely different and actually quite alien they were people and they they have the same kinds of needs and the, uh, for for culture for as you say that social life um bonding 
and to remember things, to remember events that have happened um, so that they could put them into some kind of their own kind of worldview in, uh, of, of, uh, of their life. Because we create stories about our lives, don't we? I mean, I'm terrible. I, I, have, a, I have a set of anecdotes that I roll out when I'm with my friends, when something comes up, oh yes, I've got an anecdote about that. <laughs> and it uh, must get really boring for them. But mm-hmm. but we, it's just a kind of a natural thing to to create these stories about, you know, about a holiday that you've been on or or, yeah. or whatever. You you, it might have been pretty chaotic at the time, but you you put all of the events in a linear order and. The, there's a theme that runs through and when you come to the conclusion it returns back to something that you started with and it's um <laughs> i feel like stewie and um, family guy now but you know what i mean it's kind of mm-hmm. um we're doing it all the time except when we're trying to get across in written format quite a lot of our of the evidence about about prehistory and i think it's particularly important now because um, the Stone Age to Iron Age, as Michael Gove calls it, is now being taught in primary schools across England. Um, the actual full title is Changes in Britain from the Stone Age to the Iron Age. And uh, the guidance that goes with it suggests that you contrast Mesolithic hunter-gatherers with Neolithic farmers, or that you look at uh, Bronze Age religion through Stonehenge, which is a bit of a problem. Um or that you look at Iron Age, hill forts and culture and art. Um, and teachers are um, doing a little bit of that, but they're actually being quite creative and doing quite a lot of interesting things. And cave painting is, is just a gift for teachers to do with their kids. So um, at the moment, teachers are searching for the resources and the stories to be telling their kids. So... Um, I set up Schools Prehistory a couple of years ago when I um, saw that the curriculum had changed and was going to to be delivered from 2014 Um, and have been trying to get across to teachers this central idea that people were just like us. And I think this podcast is part of that, my my journey, as it were, my my, uh, quest to make prehistory much more accessible. Because at first there was a lot of uh, worry and, and protest about the idea of teaching such a, a remote period of history to seven-year-olds. But through stories, there's there's no way that they can get engaged with it. It's just a fantastic um, resource. So um, we will be, uh, through the course of this podcast, hopefully, in different episodes, be looking at both children's um, books, picture books or novels that have been set in prehistory. Um, so I hope that this podcast will be useful for teachers as well, um, as well as looking at um, novels that have been written for adults, because they're also, they're, the, the evidence in them can often be really interesting. Um, I'd like to go back to something that you said about how we, that um, stories are how we remember. I think memory is a memorization um is a really undervalued skill particularly in kids nowadays and and, you know i i don't remember anybody's phone numbers anymore for instance (laughs) hardly remember my own what's the point um 
and you know you don't you don't remember poems that you were taught at school like my gran can recite so many different poems that she learned by rote at school and is this is this a problem that we don't memorize things anymore what do you think I think that it depends, obviously, I think it depends on the school. Um, like, for example, I I remember, uh, so maybe it, it was a bit later on, and mm. uh, my school forced us, well, made us do uh, singing. So we did it as a chorus, and I mean the entire, like, from about third year onwards, you had to sing as part of a big chorus, and we had to learn Latin. And, of mm. course, we had, like... We'd done Latin classes in first and second year, and the only reason that anybody remembered any Latin was because stupid comments about Latin. And, like, they, they used Latin in a very weird way. So, for example, I remember, um, I remember, for example, <laughs> I, I, okay, so, so, so I'm just trying, I'm just remembering all these, like, um, to, like, if you wanted the verb to banter, it was a ba- yeah. it's banto, bantamus, bantabus, uh, bantamo. <laughs> I think it is. I, I I can't remember all of them now, but it was like it was just bant with the like of the Latin prefixes, and I remember all of that. <laughs> and the my favorite one is sonus mihi, which means sound to me. And obviously in Latin, you're like, what the hell does that mean? But like, if so, if, if for example, you're trying to, if you're being if somebody has done something that you're not very happy about and they've kind of messed yeah. you around a bit, then it's, I sound to me, you know, it's kind of like a sarcastic kind of saying, why the hell did you do that? So when people say, yeah. so does me, he, it's the same thing, but it's almost like it's got another layer to it that anybody listening is like, oh, I know what that means. But somebody, you know, who doesn't know Latin <laughs> won't know what that means. And we we it's it, to me that that's funny it's funny because it's like a use of a language that is obviously doesn't mean anything in that language in particular it's actually uh, mm. uh something in our language i, I, I that, and that's really cool and we had to learn these like pieces that were obviously written in latin but i mean most of the time it was like lex aeternum uh requiem dies irae dies ila solve sum campila but you know like it, it kind of gets stuck in your head um yeah uh, especially the rhythm rhythm is good for memory too isn't it and mm-hmm. um it's maybe this this podcast should be about story about songs <laughs> i should say yeah no, it's just <laughs> it just you... so happens that's the that's what's my connection to memory is is learning through songs and rhythm patterns because we we had to practice all the time and they just kind of drilled mm. it into us and i think what you're saying about, you know, for example, your grandmother knowing poems is the thing is that mm. the way we teach has changed because in the past it, there was a lot of repetition. But, you know, we, we've made way from repetition to other modes of learning, which are, I don't know, better, worse. I don't, I, mm. you know, I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> it's one of those things, but. Yeah, it's a big debate at the moment um, in schools about that. Um, so we won't go yeah, into that right course. now. <laughs> um, you know, the, the the idea of the Singaporean method being better than the English method. I thought I would, um, seeing as we don't, ha- um, I hadn't planned to talk about a particular book about prehistory today. Um, Mm-hmm. But I thought I just I just reached behind me to to my to my wall of books about prehistory, 
and have found uh, one that I, I'm not going to talk about as part of this um, this series, the, uh, this podcast, because I don't like it. So I thought, well, I'll get it out of the way now <laughs> instead. And it's, um, it's Ugg, Boy Genius of the Stone Age by Raymond Briggs. And I love her. I love Raymond Briggs. I, mean, I do remember reading When the Wind Blows when I was at school. But the, the, um, oh, I just have such a problem with this. And I know it's it's very tongue in cheek, but um, just the central tenet annoys me. Um, and we'll get to why a little, um, it'll become clear. Um, so basically, Ugg, I don't know if anyone who's listening or Tristan, if you've read nope. this, Boy Genius of the Stone Age. So it's on the front cover is a picture of I'll I'll take a picture and put it on with the with the podcast when it's um when it's put up. Um of a boy otherwise naked who is wearing stone trousers because it's the Stone Age, right? So everything is made out of stone. Um Funnily enough, they don't eat stones. They do actually kill animals and eat animals. But the the beds are made out of stone. The pillows, um, the shoes. Is the washing machine is, is the washing machine stone. made out of stone as well? I mean, you know, I'm just thinking like, the, oh yeah. yeah, it's it's just like us, but everything's stone. Ha 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 ha. I know exactly. There's a boat made out. This of is stone. this is what I call the Flintstones model. You know, it is. It is what? basically, and it's about how, how the how people. What annoys me is that it presupposes that people were stupid, and that it took just one. It's just one boy genius, boy genius, of course, to um, come up with some some new idea out of nowhere, rather than that everybody naturally has an idea of what kind of materials are going to be good for what jobs, and will have. Everyone will have ideas, and uh, well, there's a lot, a big debate about how ideas um, uh, are formed, of course. I need to find a bit where he's talking about he wants some trousers made out of cloth. Um, uh, here we go. So, what we find in a lot of history is that, like, when there's certain environments of time, almost in which. Um, a paradigm shift occurs when a discovery is made and we, we see actually a lot of the time there are the same kind of discoveries made in different parts of the world about the same mm, kind of things. Yeah. I mean, like you have to look at, um, for example, Soviet scientists working on quantum mechanics. I mean, they, they made a lot of different, uh, they had a lot of different ideas, but there were the same kind of discoveries and ideas that were coming out as well as uh, like out of Western um, scientists mm. as well. So I find it very interesting that there is almost a universality to the time period in which discoveries are made. So I, I think the the fact, the idea that it's just one person changing everything, I, I think that's a bit I don't know. I think it's a it bit is. simplistic. It is simplistic, but it's it's also it's it's quite um, patronizing and insulting to people in prehistory. And I know they're all dead. Who cares? But um, the the corollary is, is that there are people out there who are still living Stone Age lives, and are they, frankly, stupid just because they're Stone Age? Well, of course not, because they don't do things like wear stone trousers. I found the. Um, extract from Ugg, uh, Boy Genius of the Stone Age by Raymond mm -hmm. Briggs that I wanted to um, read to you. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's in a cartoon format. 
and it starts out this way. These trousers are too small, Dad. Ah, oh, the way you kids grow. I wish trousers weren't made of stone. They're so uncomfortable I can hardly move. They were made for you by me, hand-carved trousers. Why can't trousers be made of something else, Dad? Something softer. Softer? Look, there's nothing in the world except mud, bushes and, bushes and stones. So take your pick. What do you want? Trousers made of mud? Trousers made of bushes? Uh, no, but something softer, warmer, less hard and cold. Listen to me, Ugg. Nowadays, everything is made of stone. That's why nowadays it's called the Stone Age. So that's... Um... <laughs> I'm out. I'm out. Sorry, I'm just, I'm just throwing my hands up here. I'm out. I'm freaking out. Yes, because we knew we lived it. I mean, okay, okay. For example, Kim, what age yeah, do we exactly. live in now? Yeah, exactly. There is that. I mean, obviously, it's tongue in cheek. Obviously, yeah. <laughs> but you know, the kids are oh, yeah. uh, surely he he's, he's crediting them with some uh, uh, irony that they can appreciate this. Uh, that oh yeah, they wouldn't know what they, they were living in the Stone Age. Um, but I, but I, I, the this the the central. Um, kind of uh, as, uh, concept he wants to get across is that um, it, people couldn't think of what to do other than wear stone, use stone for everything. I don't know. Uh, maybe I'm, I'm being really... Um... Well, I think on the other side of it, I think there is a lot of ideas in the present that people can't think of other ways of things being like i can understand the idea that you know people are like well it's always mm. been done like this and then something comes along and everybody's like whoa that's that's actually that's a cool idea let's let's everybody get involved uh, in this cool idea M my issue is that while the person is obviously wanting to write a story about the stone age and has kind of i think it, it sounds like they've taken one idea like a joke yeah. an offhand comment yeah. and they've made a bit story about it the fact is that what is the person actually trying to say in this? You know, what are the kind of ideas here? Like, obviously, obviously a very a timeless, as we say, a timeless thing. There's a lot of sarcasm in that. Um, is the kind of idea between generations. You know, there's the new generation comes along, does something a little, quite a bit different, and the older generation's like, oh, like, oh, why, why are you doing that? That's sad. We've never yeah. done that before. You know, that's that's a timeless kind of thing. And, um, the, you know, people can relate to having an issue with, children have an issue with parents, parents having an issue with children. I think that's a very uh, common thing. And, like, then the person, the author is trying to then bring in and try and say, well, okay, well, how did somebody think about the first pair mm, yeah. of clothes, you know? Uh, what, what did somebody think about that? And I, I just, maybe, maybe maybe those are the kind of ideas that need to be explored more explicitly. I think explicitly. so, but then again, what, I think what the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, did anyone have to think very carefully about clothes? Or did they just put something warm around their bodies, especially as pe the early people were um, getting less and less hairy, uh, then presumably it would have been quite a natural thing to start wrapping themselves up. I mean, obviously we can we can date the appearance of the first bone needle um, to the late the upper Paleolithic, but um, really, is that the first time anyone had ever worn clothes? Um, I don't, I don't, 
I don't oh, of know. course. I mean, until that bone needle <laughs> appeared, then everybody was just, you know, walking because around. Because mm-hmm. the, the, the yeah. denouement <laughs> of um, Ugg, um story is that they create mm. two pieces um, that of uh, of cloth from a or that well a bit of fur um, in the shape of the front and back of trousers, but then they don't know what to do. They haven't got any idea about of, of how to join mm. them together. It's terrible. And the dad says, oh, I don't see how we can do that, son. We've done all we can. And they stand there looking um, sadly at the two pieces that could have been trousers. And the last page is Ugg as an old man. His parents have um, died and he wishes it wasn't the Stone Age. He says, "Uh, things must get better. It can't always be like this. People will have nice, soft, warm trousers one day, perhaps in the future, things will get better, won't they? Um, and it's... Uh, okay. <laughs> what do you think yeah. now? Uh, well, I, my, my, one of my first problems is the fact that why does it have to be trousers? Why can't oh. it be a skirt? Like, I mean, to me, a skirt comes before yeah. trousers. Because trousers, you got each individual leg. Skirt, you kind of like can move your legs underneath it. I, I like, I don't know what the history of the skirt. I is, would say it's older than trousers. To yeah, me, I think you're probably right there. Mm. Yeah, same, same. And um, the other thing is like we don't know about the concept of future in the past, so um, we don't know what people thought about in terms of the future. I mean, the thing is, we think about the future because of our own kind of like obsession yeah. with legacy. Like we, we we are kind of obsessed. The opposite way in which, like, when we look at the past, we see, um, you know, ancestor worship, you know, and we see people looking to yeah. their own past. Yeah, exactly. Right? But I feel right now we are looking towards our future. We're looking to the legacy that we leave and that people, yes. what people will think And doesn't of it us. make our lives so much more uncertain that way? I, I feel that, yes. that you, um, you, you've got to, you've got to look to the past to be, to be confident about yourself and what you've achieved. That's all in all the self-help books. Mm-hmm. But to look to the future and you <laughs> don't know what's happening, it's very um, unsettling. I think that, that there's something in there as well about those stories, the importance of those stories for retelling and retelling events mm-hmm. that happened in the past that position you where you are now. Yeah. And that is your is your justification for being there. It's your justification of power, perhaps, um, if you're if you're ruling a kingdom and there's some reason why you got there in the first place, then that story is going to be told again and again. Um, but even if you're just an everyday person and you've, you know, you're living in a house, um, you may tell the story of how your father or your grandfather or your grandmother um, and all of the family got together to build this house. Um, obviously, we're talking about prehistoric house here. Um, so it, it's yeah, I think that's really that's quite an interesting idea. Is that the the whole concept of uh, wondering in many ways if Raymond Briggs was talking really if it was making a comment on the fact that we're often looking at to the future um, and not looking to what has mm-hmm. gone before well let's not put words in his mouth you <laughs> we're know. just trying to be a bit I fair mean, stone, stone trousers. trousers I know this is why I hate this book <laughs> and I know that yeah him is, is clearly tr- it just 
trying to be provocative, mm. but um, I don't think that anybody yeah. learns anything from that book, unfortunately. I'm I'm wondering, Kim. You know, like a lot of the stories nowadays, we we use to as a vehicle for mm. other ideas, right? So, a story can be about I don't know a bunch of superheroes, but yet it can be about ultimately discussing what morality yeah. is is as a function of society, or how do we relate to the mm. past? I mean, do you think stories in the past also had? another level to them i mean the thing is when we talk about metaphors and fables and ideas that ultimately come from the past mm. i mean do we do we look at stories as a way of telling sharing information in a functional way i mean the thing is does every story have a hidden yeah. function i mean this is one of those weird things because ultimately when you tell a story where something happens in a certain way people take something out of that. It's impossible not it, to take absolutely. something out of a story. I mean, if you could look clear. at Aesop's Fables, which I've just been um, doing some work on recently, it's, uh, they, they are explicitly meant to teach you a moral, but the diff difficulty is that with every different telling that you find in all the different sources, especially up-to-date ones, um, it's different. The moral is different, and the morals change on what you want to. You know, it de depends on the interpreter, and mm -hmm. um, depends on, very much on the time in which you're based. Because the moral of um, the the um, the hare and the tortoise, which is a really famous one, mm -hmm. um, in the most recent, um, well, the most recent one that I looked at, which was by Michael Morpurgo, which is a nice, a lovely. Um, a uh, lovely book actually but <laughs> the i was really surprised at the hare and the um tortoise at uh, the moral because um instead of being all about the you know that what's the what's the usual moral that you hear at the end of the hare and the tortoise um slow and steady yeah. wins the race so basically ultimately if you're if you kind of just keep going even at a slower space you, you'll keep you keep going because everybody who's fast in any way is a lazy, self-absorbed sod <laughs> who will just well, exactly. will see that you're far behind and will take advantage of that to take a rest because ultimately the hare didn't think, okay, right, to ensure that I definitely win, I'm going to run the entire track, win, and then take a nap. The problem is that, like, yeah, there's, you know, people who are quick and fast and think they're better than everybody else are superficial and don't look forward. I think that's yeah. what now the, <laughs> very good uh, <laughs> yes I, I think that that's that's it's clearly going to be a moral tale on the hair but the but it in Morpurgo's um it is similar speed isn't everything there are other ways of winning but it's um also to me it's a moral um judgment on the tortoise because the tortoise goes past the hair and very deliberately um doesn't wake them so that he's basically uh, taking advantage of someone. I think there there are other ways of winning, by taking oh advantage word. of the hare, and uh, therefore, and then he crows over her at the end. Um, the the tortoise, I think, is a, is supposed to be male, and the hare is supposed to be female in this story. Anyway, um, so. Whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait! That's amazing. <laughs> that is so I cool. That is, and yeah. it's so true as well. I mean, the thing is, it's almost like, well, the hare deserves it for being, you know, so quick and better than me. So they deserve. <laughs> oh, wait. 
Yeah. Yeah, so I love it. I love it. Slightly it's, more that, morally really um, ambivalent, I think. And um, I think that uh, mm-hmm. I think that we will. We often do. I mean, there's a, uh, there's lots of um, stories being told now on TV and in film, as you say, with the superheroes, and people are saying um, about how they teach us about loyalty and uh, and um, uh, uh, Stuff no, like they that. teach us about rampant <laughs> well, yeah, capitalism yeah, yeah. can enforce can enforce an idea that basically explosions can sell <laughs> movies. I mean that that's ultimately what it is. Like to me, to well, me, there is that. you know, yeah, there But yeah, I think that there that we often ascribe a kind of that um, some kind of deeper meaning to stories, and I think that that was also a, a feature of lots and lots of stories being told in the past as well. Um, and I feel, in a way, that maybe the the academic storytelling or the or non storytelling, the academic narratives that are created, are a way to just tell the story without any moral moral um, uh, kind of uh, um, ending. So you're that's the that's the objectivity that you're striving for, isn't it? It's to not have a moral judgment on anything that's happened in the past, but just to tell it as it is. Well, I I complete. This is where I completely disagree. I don't think I think that mm, to yeah. me, right? Trying right, basically ascribing your work as an objective positivist <laughs> piece is in itself a political and moral <laughs> move. You know, because I think ultimately there's this there's a morality tied to being yes. objective. You know, it's this idea that in some ways that if you let even a little piece of emotion in, you are yes. somehow poisoning yes, exactly. the well yeah. for everyone else. But, but, but in fact, I think that we need to go the opposite way, right? We, we really need to put ourselves more in the work, but in a very, but we have to make it very apparent. Because to me, I'd rather know that somebody has dutifully and kind of woven a narrative but I understand that they've done that rather than them trying to present yeah. it as objective, but somehow have unco- subconsciously put in their own ideas into it. Like, I, I, I think that by trying to convince ourselves that we can be objective, despite having subjective senses, um, it's it's very it, it's almost yeah. more insidious when we exactly. try and write well i'm with things. you so, there tristan absolutely i think yeah. it's it's very much kate Good. i was um saying that's what we're, that's what academics feel that they're doing they're striving to do mm. that um yeah. and yet it doesn't work because it can you can never be completely mm. objective as uh, clearly um and I find it funny, you know, you were saying uh, stories in an uh, academic sense. It's like, oh, no, no, no. It's stories when you guys say it. It's <laughs> narratives when we say it. I like that. that that's a very, I, yeah. I think that's a bit, you know, a bit yeah. telling. Um, do we, you know, yeah. like you're just telling a story. <laughs> it's a narrative. I, I've constructed a, it's a narrative to tell, of, you know, throughout the ages. It's, it's just my PhD. It's a story. Yeah, okay, yeah story. there is something pejorative about using the word story, isn't there, in that sense? Mm-hmm. And yet, I think um, it would be lovely to have more stories. And let's face it, let's credit the readers with some intelligence. When you read any kind of historical novel, like when I, st- I started talking about... Um, uh, Here Be Dragons earlier, mm-hmm. or if you read a fantasy novel, and I am a huge fan of A Song of Ice and Fire, 
<laughs> Nerd. Which Nerd. I insist on it being a series of books being called, not just a Game of Thrones, of course. Um, mm-hmm. But the, yeah. uh, but you can see, you can see, and if you can't, uh, and even if you can't see it from when you first read it, with more reading that you do in around the world about all sorts of different periods and places, you can see all the research that George R. R. Martin has put into that. And I only just realised, because I've only just been reading and writing about Alexander the Great, that Daenerys Targaryen is Alexander the Great, except he's taken a moral view that uh, Alexander should not have sold all those people into slavery. And so Daenerys tries to free people from slavery, but then he, he clearly is exploring whether or not that would work economically, which doesn't. So... Um, uh, by the way, if anybody's interested in the Game of Thrones series has not read every single book there is, you've just now had several things spoiled for you. Yeah, that's a good point. Sorry about that. And I am one of the people who has not read all the books and is slowly working themselves through the, st- uh, through the series, and I've just had part of Game of Thrones oh, spoiled Tristan, for me. Oh, Tristan, I'm so sorry. <laughs> That was the most in. Uh, da, da, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. What? I'm so it's not, sorry. It's really Tristan. not an important you know detail at all. It, I mean, it doesn't tell you if anyone lives or dies. That's the main thing, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> No, I, I, I know. I'm, I'm just. It, it was sorry. the most patronizing thing. No, I didn't oh, mean. I'm sorry, I did not mean for... it to be patronizing. <laughs> <laughs> sorry if that came over that way. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's okay. I, I find that I find that funny actually. I find that funny. And that see, this is the story. This is a story in itself. Us yeah. making this podcast is a story go. in itself. And I, I think that's that's very good. But you, you said you said you had a quote yeah. from. George R. R. Martin that you yes. wanted to share. Now, um, obviously, lots of people have asked him, where, where do you get your ideas? Because that's a, a nice, uh, boring question to ask a, an author. Um, and he said that he didn't create the world before he wrote about it. It created itself. But that the wall predates everything else. Now, if, if you haven't read any of Game of Thrones or seen any of the programs, the wall is um, this huge wall that is garrisoned behind it um, and protects the southern kingdoms from wildlings and various scary things north of the wall. So uh, no guesses, um, no no, no prizes to anyone who can't guess which wall that is based on. So he can trace, apparently, that uh, there is inspiration for that to a visit to Hadrian's Wall in 1981. And he, he says, I stood up there and I tried to imagine what it was like to be a Roman legionary standing on this wall, looking at these distant hills. It was a very profound feeling. For the Romans at that time, this was the end of civilization. It was the end of the world. We know that there were Scots beyond the hills. Well, no, not quite. But they didn't know that. It could have been any kind of monster. It was the sense of this barrier against dark forces. It planted something in me. But when you write fantasy, everything is bigger and more colourful, so I took the wall and made it three times as long and 700 feet high and made it out Mm -hmm. of ice. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I, I... I, I must say that is that is really. I good. think I would take I would take exception to the idea that they didn't know that the Scots or who, the Caledonians were living out there, um, uh, and, and the wall, the Hadrian's Wall, was not really um, a military barrier. It was 
<laughs> yes, it was. It was the it was the Romans against the Caledonians and Scotland through the back, through the back where they came from. That's the thing, you know. Apart, uh, you know, obviously, obviously, the very historically accurate documentary Braveheart did chronicles with a pure pure history that is you know developed throughout the entire this is what has made britain britain i mean that's that's just it but you know the funny thing is i constantly have to explain to people that i'm north of the wall and i i say that like and people get it people get it right you see you see london it's like king's landing right david cameron is like joffrey and in the most recent election we re-elected joffrey in that's ultimately what it is I actually, I do like the fact that the King of the North is currently the Queen of the North, Nicola Sturgeon. I I, I like that yeah. idea. But, uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> See, this is, this is it. Like, the, the world is becoming more and more like Game of Thrones. Yeah, it's wonderful. Well, we see more Game of Thrones around us, maybe, as we get more immersed in the wonderful world. Um, but I think, um... What I was to continue what I was saying, which, which is that <laughs> lovely um, uh, diversion. Pe- mm-hmm. Readers are intelligent and they can see that uh, what you've based your your ideas on. If you're a fantasy writer, it, you know you can see that uh, with George R. R. Martin, he's used the War of the Roses, he's used Hadrian's Wall, and he's used Alexander the Great, amongst other um, many many other um, histories to create his his world. Um, and I think that the well, this is what I want to try and do in this podcast, really, is to make that explicit, um, if it isn't already, in some of the books um, that we're going to be looking at, um, looking at what is the research behind that? What is that based on? Is it accurate? Is, is the interpretation quite close? Or is it a little bit out there? Um, how much can, do you think you can trust it? How much does it inspire you to be a bit more, uh, if you're an archaeologist, to be a bit braver with how you interpret your own um, sites um, or interpret the, whatever whatever it is you're studying? So that's um, mm-hmm. that's hopefully something that, we, that I can get across through through these podcasts. But um, um, the but I think that that a lot of readers will already have those skills and be able to see that. So we don't we don't need to be worried about um, about being a little bit more a bit more brave. Uh, sorry, I'll start again. Mm-hmm. We don't need to yep. be worried about being a bit braver in how we write our prehistories. Mm-hmm. It's it, you're completely right, and I think this is uh, this is the thing is that it's okay it's okay to write a bit of story as long as you make it uh you 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 present it in such a way that it is a story that people can see that and they don't think oh well this is as it happened i mean that's the problem with uh what i think is a problem with mainstream media is that you know things are presented as is and you don't see what's made Mm. behind the scenes you know and and i think that's just the way media is made but if we don't have a if we don't have a conception of that then obviously we're going to think well maybe that is just how it is you know let's let's let the experts Mm. talk it out you know and i think i think that we the better the better we are at telling our stories 
right the better we are at making it apparent that we yeah. are telling stories and i i think that's what's really important so i'll i'll, I'll be really looking forward to hearing from all the different people that you have on the show and how they um think about yeah. their story writing and how they kind of interact with it I, I, i'd love yeah, to hear it's that. going to be really exciting that's going to be really cool um I've got a few a few people lined up that and not only the archaeologists but also authors, um, archaeologists and stroke author, um, and we'll be looking at books that are not just by um, established authors and writers who are fantastic at their craft and have done lots of research, but also at those archaeologists who have used their research and turned author and created um a a fictional world a fictional account um as well so there's there's quite a lot of crossover and we'll see who's who's more um successful at that is it the the author who's used to weaving fictional worlds using research or is it the researcher who has great grasp of the facts who can then weave it into a story um perhaps um both are very valid ways of doing it but um that'll be really interesting to explore well, I'd like to say thank you to my guest, Tristan Boyle from An Archaeologist. Thank you very much. It's been very entertaining uh, talking to you. <laughs> no, it has. As it always is, as it always is. I, I, I must say this is why you were on my show twice, um, because yeah, uh, no. you're also a great... I, I can't wait to hear more uh, more stuff from uh, the wonderful prehistoric stories. <laughs> prehistoric. <laughs> I can't say it. Right. I, 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 yeah, I, from prehistories. Prehistories. There you go. Now, there so go. <laughs> um, I'd like, if I can just, um, I'm going to do, I don't know who I'm, what, what, which one's going to come next, but mm. I've got three, as I say, I've got three possible ones planned. So um, if I just say mm. there's three different um, in the next, tune into the yeah. next, next episode um, with those three different possibilities, and then you can just put in whichever mm. of those comes first. How about that? So, yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, what what can we look forward to hearing about on the next couple of episodes? Well, um, in the next episode, I get to talk to the inimitable Spencer Carter, for, of uh, also known as Microburin, um, about the Scottish tsunami in the Metalithic um, and how that was depicted uh, and the aftermath of it in Margaret Elkinson's The Gathering Night. Um, in a Another episode, um, I'll be talking to Matt Ritchie. Um, yes, Matt Ritchie's <laughs> awesome. I know That's him. That's really great. Uh, yeah, he's up yeah, here yeah. in uh, he's yeah, up in the yeah. Highlands, isn't he? Yeah, he's a yeah, cool guy. He's a cool guy. Um, um, James Dilly of Ancient mm -hmm. and Don Henson, um, formerly of the Council of British Archaeology and now at the University of York. Um, about a series of books set in Mesolithic Scotland. I think we might be able to guess what they All are. Right. Children's books. Your last yeah. uh, person. Um, is it again? Okay, so it's it's going to be Matt Ritchie from Forestry Commission Scotland, James Tilly of Ancient Craft, and Don Henson, um, uh, who's studying at the University of York at the moment into the public perceptions of the Mesolithic. Um, so we're going to be looking at a um, series of children's books set in Mesolithic Scotland uh, called Wolf the Wolf Brother series by Michelle Paver, which um, uh, is fantastic series books. Um, in a later episode, I should be talking to Francis Pryor and Rachel Pope about the depiction of Hillforts and the Iron Age in a children's book called The Ravens, based on Ravensborough Castle in Hertfordshire, uh, written by 
the excavator of Ravensborough Castle, James Dyer. So that is a, a really fantastic adventure book. Um, and uh, Francis Pryor actually dug at Ravensborough with James Dyer. Um, Rachel Pope is digging hill forts um, all the time. <laughs> uh, so those, those two will be, we'll have a great discussion about the role of hill forts um, in the Iron Age. That's not, that's amazing. Like honestly, that's that's crazy. I, I like I cannot, I cannot say how how excited I am <laughs> to hear uh, about all this. I, I'm really looking forward to this, and I think it's going to be a great addition to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Which um, obviously we're always happy to welcome new shows, and this is this is just going to be another great show to add to our roster. Thanks very list. much. So if if people are wanting to get in contact with you if you want that? to contact me you can um, email me at kim at schools prehistory.co.uk um, or you can uh, find me on twitter at uh, at sch prehistory um, or at kim bidolf as well all of the details will be um, underneath the podcast so you'll be able to get in contact and uh, you can contact tristan yeah, not a problem. So if you want to get in contact with me, it is Tristan at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or you can find me on Twitter at anarchaeologist. Of course, I do my own show, but we've got a ton of other shows on the network as well. So I, I, I'd be remiss if I did not promote them as well. So if you're interested in an archaeology podcast just like this one, you can go and check out the rest on the network. Thank you to my guest and my inspiration, Tristan Boyle, the unarchaeologist, and thanks for listening, everybody. Listen in to the next episode in which I talk to Matt Ritchie, the Forestry Commission Scotland's archaeologist, James Dilly of Ancient Craft, and Donald Henson of York University about a children's book set in the Mesolithic. Wolf Brother by Michelle Paver. And there we found out that James Dilly first read the book when he was 12, in the same year I first read it, but I was 30. Way to make me feel old. After that, in an episode after, I'm going to be talking to Rebecca Rag Sykes of Bordeaux University and Matthew Pope of UCL about a book set even further back in time in the Paleolithic, the very famous Clan of the Cave Bear by Jean M. Owl. We discuss Neanderthals, Daryl Hannah, and a new upcoming miniseries produced by Ron Howard, which looks very exciting. This is the first episode of Prehistories on, of two on Clan of the Cave Bear, as I'll be talking to Rena Maguire, Ross Barnett, and Jan Friedman, known collectively as the Twilight Beasts, about the wild and tame animals in the book, and ask... Is it real or is it owl? So thank you very much for listening. This is Kim Bidolf of Prehistories, and I hope you'll be listening to one of our future episodes. <laughs>